Okay, everybody, <clears throat> can, can you hear me okay? <clears throat> you can hear me? So what I'm doing, this is cool. Um, I'm doing a quick scroll through, through names and faces here, which is great. Um, because usually when I do these things, I don't have this type of kind of contact, um, which is super helpful for me because otherwise um, I feel like I'm talking in a cereal box. <laughs> and so what, what this is about, this is great. Oh, fantastic. Beautiful. So what this little event is about is, um, coronavirus yeah the, the social intimacy series coronavirus chapter this is really a, a very informal way for us to simply gather um, as a community and support each other um, talk about things that we feel may be of some value either in terms of sharing i mean there's so much information going around these days i mean i i can barely keep track um, and, and so the spirit is different from what I usually do with events like this, which is where I, I usually present some big prepared thing. And then we have a Q&A thing. And I, I will just have a few kind of preparatory comments. But really, this, this experimental gathering is much more spontaneous, hopefully playful, um, and participatory, where I think what will really bring this to life is your questions, your offerings, you know, what, what did you come across that really helped you? What have you tried or read that was like, well, that's definitely worth sharing. Um, so that I become, you know, perhaps more a facilitator than, uh, than a point person here. But again, this is really in the spirit of experimentation, um, emergent design, let's just see where this takes us. And, um, you know, I think, with the collective wisdom as I scan through these names, I mean, there, there's a lot of wisdom in this group. Um, and so I'm just gonna say a couple introductory comments. There were a couple questions that were piped into me, so I, I will address those. And then really is, for those of you who are listening in, think about something that you might want to ask, contribute, offer, that we can then just basically spend an informal kind of campfire um, chat uh, riffing about because this sense of, um, really what should be labeled, in my opinion, uh, social intimacy, physical distancing, is that we can use these modern avenues of um, the internet and whatnot to really stay connected in situations that are otherwise driving us apart. So I did want to share a couple things. You know, I read recently, this is something that I read that was interesting, is um, being together is really not the same as being connected. Um, and so the <clears throat> scholar that I referenced here that I came across is Martha Welsh from Columbia University. And she has some interesting recommendations actually that, that are worth sharing. And one of them is in the spirit of one very simple meditation that I do wanna share with you, a really simple thing that um, I have found to be incredibly helpful during this time is a kind of you know, if I use this word carefully, it's a kind of vaccine um, against you know, kind of this defensive and sometimes offensive contraction that comes about when there's just so much threat in the air. But this professor says this, that, she, that one of the best ways to connect 
is with deep, intentional, and vulnerable conversations where we uh, allow ourselves to reveal ourselves um, to others. And she recommends that during um, really deep, uh, intimate connectivity, that one pause for up to 90, 90 seconds as a way to really uh, um, incorporate what's been passed along and also to curtail the usual reflexive tendency we have, reactive tendency we have. You know, we're almost always preparing our responses um, before we even open our mouths. And so we lose our sense of connection with others. And so this is largely in the spirit of openness um, and connects deeply to my very favorite definition of meditation these days, which I often speak about, which is habituation to openness, staying open to what's happening, staying open to each other. Um, not so easy when there's so much threat in the air, um, so much really that brings about levels of contraction. Um, so the other thing she recommends that I thought was compelling, very interesting, is to do rhythmic activities that create a sense of attunement with your body and then also with the earth. Um, she recommends singing, dancing, yoga, um, and when you're in contact with others, deep eye contact. So that's why having you for, uh, for me to look at is, is actually really helpful. Um, and the other thing that's mentioned in this article I read was apparently a study by Anna Freud, daughter of Sigmund Freud, where she found that children during the London bombings in World War II, the children that actually remained in London that had greater social contact and relationship, even though they were under physical threat from the bombs, actually ended up faring, doing better after the war than children that were taken outside of the city that were more in isolation and that didn't have this type of connection. So even though they were physically safer than the children that were left in London, they had more deleterious consequences of this type of isolation. And so that's really the spirit of what I'm trying to do here, kind of just um, winging it in, in, a, in a way, um, just seeing how this will work for all of us. So it's, it's really kind of a living thing. And the reason I want to turn mostly to Q&A and discussion is um, I want to know exactly what it is that you're interested in, what you can teach me. So we can just be really targeted because I am, if you're at all following my silly propaganda, I mean, I'm doing a ton of stuff in, in a sort of formal capacity around this. I'm actually finishing up a, tomorrow the um, third course in a program I'm doing for Tricycle Magazine. Next week, I'm starting a 10-week program for the um, a center here in Boulder. I'm going to be doing a, a weekend program at Shabala Mountain Center specifically about this kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm really teaching on this um, in a quite expanded way using these other formats and venues. And that's why I don't want to just repurpose and reiterate all that stuff here. Um, but I do want to say one thing around this, and, and this is what inspired me at the very beginning to, to make these kinds of offerings, is that I, I teach a lot, as many of you know, on, on the Bardo teachings from Tibetan Buddhism, um, you know, the teachings that are associated with death and dying. And these teachings are incredibly applicable to what's happening right now um, because we're in a bardo you know bardos are those kind of groundless spaces 
um, where the rug of your reality has just been pulled off from under your feet and everything that you associated with consistency, stability, security, constancy is just gone. And these are really powerful instances in life. Um, and this is why they say in the Bardo teachings that if one is prepared and relates to Bardo's properly, there are more opportunities for psychological and spiritual growth in Bartles, in instances like this, than in other instances, because um, in a certain way, the snow globe has been shaken. You know, everything is like in disarray, right? Everything that you thought was safe and secure is just up in the air. And it's really interesting to watch. It's really highly revelatory to me. It's like, where, where's, where's the snow globe going to settle? What are the new patterns? How am I going to take rebirth, so to speak? So the karmic bar, the teachings on the painful bardo of dying, which is, you know, the painful body of, of bardo of letting go, that's where we're in right now. We're letting go of, of so much of our sense of normalcy. The teachings on the bardo of becoming will also start to be um, applicable because where will we land out um, individually, collectively, uh, at a social, cultural, world level? How, in fact, will this change us? Can we use this um, uncomfortable experience as, in fact, an opportunity to realign our priorities, to do something that really can shape shift our own life um, and the lives of those around us? Um, and so the other thing uh, that I wanted to mention in relation to what's happening here is that obviously because of all this social distancing, every avenue of, of entertainment distraction being curtailed, we're being forced within. And for students of the contemplative spiritual traditions, this is just a way to work with retreat mind, retreat principles. So it's very interesting that collectively we're being forced into this kind of retreat. Um, and some people do really well with this sort of thing. Some people thrive when they have the opportunity to look at things more um, concertedly, more directly, while others have you know, a really hard time as they perhaps are not so comfortable spending this concentrated time with themselves. And, and um, I'm saying this because this can be revelatory, it has been for me, for our near lust for distraction. How when all these avenues are taken away, how we, we can almost feel a kind of detox <laughs> taking place. Oh my God, you know, my football game, my tennis, you know, the, the Masters was supposed to be played this week. I'm, I'm a golfer, so this is like my big event and that's gone. Um, and so noticing that within myself and then using the invitation, this kind of curfew that's being um, voluntarily and then um, many cases involuntarily imposed is an opportunity to look at things a little bit more directly. So one of the ways I'm, I'm presenting this material in my more formal riffs is that it's like uh, what's taking place now is a kind of reality concentrate. It's where so many aspects of the world, especially the samsaric world, the world of confusion and suffering, they're really being brought out in stark relief as all our usual avoidance strategies, distraction, distraction strategies have been pulled away. And, and George Saunders, this beautiful writer who wrote Lincoln and the Bardo, is this wonderful image that you know, we're, we're basically living our lives on top of the sleeping dragon and the sleeping dragon has stirred. And so we're all on top getting all kerfuffled 
by this assault on our constancy when really it's the stability that is more the exception um, than the rule. I mean, if you really take a very close look at things, which is what I think this uh, provider situation advice, you actually will see that it is Bardo instability, inconstancy, that's actually the rule. So these are the sorts of things that have been kind of brought out to me that have um, really given me fodder for my path. And so I want to um, just share with you one meditation that I'm, I'm really using a ton these days that I find extremely applicable. Um, it comes from my teacher, Kempo Tsotram Gyanso Rinpoche. Um, he's a great meditation master. And in 1991, he gave a, a, a really profound set of teachings on what's called Mahamudra, um, the kind of summit teachings in the Karmakagyu tradition of Tibetan Buddhism. And during the course of this program, I thought it was somewhat gratuitous at the time, but in, in the decades since then, I have found this to be incredibly powerful practice. It's literally um, a one breath meditation session, literally. And I use this a, a lot um, as a way, as a kind of immediate vaccine against this kind of contraction um, and I invite you to take a look at this and see if this is in fact not true. This is something we can explore. That when we're so assaulted, when there's so much, when the rug of our reality has been pulled out to such an extent, the tendency for the untamed, untrained mind and heart is in fact defensive self-contraction. And I invite you to take a look at this for yourself. In fact, you may notice this manifesting in you. I've certainly noticed it in me. Manifesting as a heightened sense of irritability. That's a form of contraction. A heightened sense of anxiety. That's a form of contraction. A heightened sense of um, disquietude and even moments of, you know, I, I feel it coming on. I don't capitulate to it. But even mo moments of anger. Every one of these are, are defensive strategies that when I pay attention to what I'm feeling, they're, they're contracting energies. And they serve to, to kind of protect and reify this illusory thing called self or ego, but fundamentally they're not helpful at all. This is in fact what creates the disconnect that this um, venue that we're playing with today is designed to open. So whenever we notice this, this contraction, this irritability, like, you know, I, I, I have an inclination to kick my cat more than ever before, <laughs> but I'm not doing it. Um, to me, it's revelatory. It's like, wow, there's this underlying kind of dread. It's just kind of underlying angst. Um, and so just being aware of that, tuning into that, and then smiling at it and realizing, hey, this is just where ego, go, ego goes to maintain its, its strategies of, of uh, defense. Then what I do is I feel that, and that's why I like this, because it's not cognitive, it's not a, a, a head thing, it's a body-heart thing. And so what I do now is every time I feel that, which is a lot, especially when I'm watching the news, um, is I feel this contraction, you know, I, sometimes I'll even feel my shoulders collapse. And I literally, I'll, I'll, I'll often close my eyes and I invite you to do this with me now. Um, and I will try to maintain enough mindfulness that we can do this between each and every question as a way to do just a brief 
connection to what Martha Welsh was talking about in terms of just pausing, pausing in itself as a type of bardo practice, a gap practice. So the invitation really is, is quite literally for one inhalation, one exhalation, one breath. <clears throat> you connect. You do one met, uh, breath meditation session. So let's try it. Couldn't be easier, okay? That's it. For me, what it does for me is it keeps the commentary that just hangs out up here, the spin doctors, the excessive thinking, it curtails that, keeps it in check, keeps the kind of obsessive thinking that can happen, especially to me, and allows me to contact my body to stay embodied, to feel what's actually happening within. So with that said, those are my preparatory comments for today. I wanna to, um, respond to the two questions that were sent in. And again, this is very much uh, an experiment. Um, and let's just see how this flies. And so I'm gonna read these questions and then I open it up to all of you, not just for your questions, but for, again, your contributions. What have you done that really works for you that others can learn from? Um, you know, suggestions, tips, offerings, and the like. So here's, here's a couple questions. What can this pandemic teach us about our relationships, especially how we have come to define intimacy and human decency? Well, again, I think if we allow it, this so-called um, teachable moment, we can, we can learn a lot. This can teach us everything. Because like the, the journey into the Bardos themselves, the journey into really challenging end-of-life situations, what I've certainly noticed, specifically when I'm working with dying people, and really and to some extent happening now, is this, you really feel the squeeze. And so all kinds of things get squeezed out, right? Um, the good, the bad, and the ugly all comes out, and you just have to watch the news to see instances of each one of these things. And this also applies, in my experience, to relationships. Um, how important are these relationships to you? Um, how how um, do you take them for granted? Um, how can we actually increase, again, in the spirit of what we're doing here, our level of connectivity, strengthen our relationships instead of kind of capitulating to this contraction that sends you down into your study and slams your door or, or, or you know, kind of otherwise um, contracts you away from others. So this is a, a difficult question to answer carte blanche for everybody because everybody is different. The thing that it has showed me is really just that, that it can teach us a great deal about our relationships because they're, they're being in a certain way tested. And um, the degree that we can open ourselves to others is, is I think highly revelatory of the opportunities that are being presented to us. The intimacy around this, especially how, how what's the question here, how we've, we've come to define intimacy and human decency well, intimacy really depends on our, our willingness to be, to be so vulnerable, to be so exposed, to open our hearts to others, to share 
our anxiety with others, which is something I think that we can also do within ourselves. Um, to realize the commonality of the human condition and that we have aspects, dimensions of our being that are absolutely positively being threatened here. Um, and so can we make, um, establish a proper relationship to that and then share that? So levels of intimacy really will be, in my experience, but about um, how willing are we to be open to ourselves, first of all, connecting with ourselves and then connecting with others. Um, and then the decency, I think, the human decency aspect of this question for me, and I'd love to hear if somebody else has something else to say, I think it's also connected to this notion of openness and vulnerability that really, in my experience, um, so to speak, indecent, quote unquote, activity is, is activity that's born from defensive in, uh, contraction. When I lose contact with myself, I lose contact with others, and then decency goes out the window. So the more I can stay open to myself, the more I can stay open to others. A natural consequence of that is in fact what we call human decency. So something like that, something like that. Second one, and then I wanna hear from you all. Do you think that introverts or extroverts are having it harder with social isolation? Well, I would suspect that, you know, introverts are probably doing a little bit better with this um, because they tend to live in a more an interior landscape to begin with, but these kind of generalizations are a little bit difficult to surmise, but I think intuitively it's not too much of a stretch to say that extroverts, those who are always looking outside of themselves, may be a little bit more challenged. But then with the right kind of um, teaching tools, we can, those who are extroverts can use this as an, in fact, an opportunity to cultivate this kind of more introverted relationship. Um, this is really, of course, super central in the Buddhist tradition, where the very definition of the word um, for Buddhists in Tibetan, Nangpa means insiders, uh, int introverts, turning within, really looking within. Um, and so, let's see, there was another part of this question. What about Buddhist practitioners who are practicing not seeking entertainment and striving to just be? Spiritual practice seems to have made me somewhat introverted, indeed. Can you say something about the fundamental human desire for social connection and how it might relate with people on the spiritual path and social isolation right now? Well, again, this is another one to kind of nail with 100% authority in a kind of carte blanche statement. It really just depends on um, how we relate to social connectivity altogether. And the way I play with this, with this one is the social connection can either be a distraction or it in fact can be what we're trying to do here, a way of genuinely connecting. So it really just depends on how we relate to it. I think at the deepest levels, the type of connectivity that we're really fundamentally looking for, of which even, again, this is just my take on it, of which even social connection is, is just a provisional or even a substitute gratification, the fundamental connection that we're looking for is the connection to our own heart-mind, the connection of our very being. Um, and I think, again, if we can see that, make connection to that, it is from that authentic space that then we can become, so to speak, extrovert um, or reach out to others from this more authentic, open stance. And I think, again, this is what this situation has invited um, and presents to me. Um, these are just some ruminations on my own approach to this, but I really um, want to hear more and more from you and definitely um, 
share in what you have to ask, offer, or even challenge. So please, at this time, it's, let's just make this an open conversation. Anything, questions, comments, and even jokes. I mean, I've got here, I've got a bunch of good ones. Here we go. I think you can see this if I put this up. Can you see it? <laughs> the end is not near enough. So please, let's, let's open this up. Um, and here's the other thing, you all. If you think that it's beneficial for me to just blah, 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 I can restructure this event to do more of that. But I, I wanted to this, this to be a little bit different from that usual approach. But um, with that said, I'm really open to most anything. So I just want to open it up at this point. And Andy, are you going to be moderating this, my friend? Did he disappear on me here? Hello. Oh, here we go. All right. Terrific. Okay, so what happened was, I think you can still hear me. Yes, hopefully. Um, I'm not sure where Andy went, but since this is a newbie, there are some, some questions, comments that have been scrolled in. So I'm just going to start with those. And hopefully my tech guy will come back online. Okay. Uh, I'm not hearing any audio. Audio is on. No audio. Please don't say that. Oh, there. Now I can hear tech issues. Okay, here's the statement. We are collectively struggling um, with a conundrum of not being able to congregate and solidify the sense of prolong of belonging in a time of social distancing. All the faith traditions are struggling with this. For instance, last night was Sadar in a time of COVID. Easter is coming and Ramadan after that. So how do we distance without isolation? Well, David, yeah, I mean, that's the $100,000 question, right? Um, and I'm not actually sure what the targeted question is here. Um, I wish I could hear you all. Okay, hold on just a second, folks. I'm trying to see what happened to my co-host. So hang with me. Andy, can you hear me now or can I hear you now? I see. Oh, there you are. Can you? Hang with us for just a, a minute, folks, as we try to get this tech thing worked out. Hey, Andrew. Yeah, I can hear you. You can hear me okay? Yeah. Let's switch. Got, can you hear me now or can I hear you now? Yeah. Can, can you still hear me, Andy? Thanks yeah, for hanging with us. Yeah. 
So here, here's what I like to do, I, you know, since this is a new run on this, um, hang with us as we kind of iron out a few things here. Um, I noticed that four people have their hands raised. I would much prefer, and Andy uh, talked about this in advance, if, if I could, instead of reading these things, because then I, I talk about isolation, um, you know, then I really don't feel like I'm having connection with you all. My strong preference, and I think now that I have Andy with me, we can start to do this, is those people who have raised their hands, Andy can select you, unmute you, and then, um, then that way I can see and hear you. I mean, that I think is a much better way to do it than trying to just read off these um, scrolled questions on the right. So can we try that, Andy, see if that works? And again, yeah, So I'll call first person I see is uh, Steve Kaplan. So I'm gonna unmute you, Steve, and give you the audio to ask your question. Oh, perfect, awesome. Hi, Steve. Hi, hello from Charlotte, North Carolina. Hey, there's actually a face. This is what I wanted. <laughs> Finally, this is, makes such a difference. Uh, so I'll, I can just share a personal comment. Of course, I'm, I'm curious to hear about other people's experience because we are locked up in our little boxes. Right. Uh, and I would think that our experiences are, you know, interesting and varied. My own has been that I have allowed myself to jump off the treadmill and stop striving, which uh, I'm really good at. And uh, I have found it really, really useful. I didn't realize how unbelievably exhausted I have been. Yeah. And uh, I am slowly uh, sort of coming in for a, what I hope is a soft landing and finding it really useful to emphasize uh, more being and less striving and more body-based being. There you go. So uh, really, really, really healthy. Yeah. I could give you a big hug. This is exactly the kind of thing I want to do, <laughs> where it's not just me, it's offerings like that. And, and really, it, it just maybe brief comments of one or two things that come to mind. I couldn't agree more with you, Steve. It's just, you know, we finally realized that we're not human doings, we're human beings. And we, when we have a, we're being forced to stop doing, which again, that's what happens when we enter into the Bardos. This is an intimation of that. Then we can start to realign our priorities, pay attention to what's more important. And often, just like you, when I go into extended, really long retreats, the first thing I do almost for the first week is I just sleep like crazy. Um, it's like I didn't realize I was so fundamentally exhausted. And so maybe we can use this as a way to recontact, replenish, and, and recharge. So thank you, my friend, for that, for that beautiful contribution. Love it. Yeah. So more of this kind of thing. This, this is really what I get aspired to connect to. So Andy, if you can help us with more like this. Sure. Question, again, anything, questions, comments, or offerings, but I find this stuff really helpful. So I see Ruth Sperber has her hand raised. So I'll call on Ruth next. Good, good. Hey, can Ruth. You, hi, can you hear me? Totally can hear you, yes, thank you. Oh, wow, this is wonderful. Uh, a question relative to what, well, I'll just go to it. Om Mane Padme Om, Om Mane Padme Om. Connect that. Uh -huh. uh, to me, that's, that's so automatic. Yeah. Uh, when, when I don't need the mind, which is 90% of the time, Om Mane Padme Om, is that the six levels of existence? 
Yes. So that, that is the Om Mani Padme Hum is the mantra. And a couple of things here, Ruth, is, uh, and you already kind of intimated, suggested this. Mantra literally means mind protection, mind protector. And what mantras do is they protect us from spinning off into our heads and getting lost in, in raging discursive thought, just like you were talking about. This particular mantra is the mantra of compassion. It's actually the sound of compassion. Um, it's, it's the mantra of Avalokiteshvara, also known as Chenrezi in Tibetan. Um, and so he's the Bodhisattva of compassion and Om Mani Padme Hum, I sometimes talk about it, that's like his email address, right? <laughs> so if you wanna to connect to compassion as is represented in Chenrezi, that's how you do it. Specifically, as you, you, you suggested this in terms of what it really implies, a little bit technical, but since you asked, um, each one of the six syllables of this six syllable mantra, Om Mani Padme Hum, is connected to one of the six realms in Buddhist cosmology. Um, and therefore, this is considered to be the most important mantra for preparing for death. In that, again, technical, that what we want to do is prevent taking form, rebirth, into um, any of these six realms of samsara. So I playfully talk about it as each one of these six syllables of the mantra kind of duct tapes the entry into these states. And so what the, the important thing for us, Ruth, is that the mantra protects us from taking rebirth psychologically in the poisonous um, six dimensions of passion, aggression, ignorance, jealousy, and pride. So not only does it allegedly protect us from, from physical rebirth at the, at the end of this life and the literal borrows, as they say, but most importantly, and this is the point, most importantly, the, this mantra protects us from taking rebirth into these six poisonous states of mind, psychologically, moment to moment. So something wow. like that. Is that helpful? Yeah, very helpful because I find the mind automatically says it constantly when I don't need the mind. It, it just rests in Oman and Pameon. Well, so, and I mean, that's it's really... Just, it's great. I have your other talk on what happens to the mind at death. Mm -hmm. uh, could you elaborate a little? Uh, I, I just think when I'm dying, that mantra is going to be there. It'll be there. And, and I'm not going to elaborate too much on that particular topic, Ruth, but I think what's important here that I do want to elaborate on, and then I'll um, probably ask you for just another question or comment, is that what you said is so cool, Ruth, because if you're, if you're finding yourself defaulting into that mantra, that's fantastic. Yes. That's, that's, yeah. that's, that's a, a, a gesture of your progress on the path. Instead of the usual default, it, neuroscientists actually call it default mode network. Instead of our usual default into the mantras of samsara, which is all about me, 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 mine, 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 that's that mantra. We're reciting that mantra all the time. That's our usual default. And so by reciting this mantra or others, you actually get to the point where you seem to be where that's where your mind now defaults. And that in the Bardo teachings is a really good thing because that is in fact then where your mind will go. It's, a, it's really using the power of habit in a really small Yes, way. exactly, yeah. So this is, this is now the habit that will take care of you because you've invested in it. So it just makes me smile 
to, to hear that something like this is being brought to fruition in your experience because it will really help you as it already has. Um, and so I can just say good for you and, and thanks for sharing that. That's true. Well, thank you, thank you. That's very reassuring. Yeah, uh, so just uh, keep it up, keep it up. Okay. It'll, it'll if you invest in it now, you will pay the dividends and you're already paying, you're reaping the, um, the benefits. So thank you for sharing that, that's, that's true. Uh, well, you were very encouraging. It's an automatic thing now, I just rest in that Om Mani Padme Om. Okay, thanks again. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. Great. Um, the next hand raised I see is Joanne Accolatus. So I'm going to give Joanne the audio. Hey, Joanne. Oh, I love it when I get to see people. Hi, Andrew. How are you? Usually, I, can't, I have to pause and tell you, I can't tell you how much this means to me because I'm spending so much time talking in front of this screen yeah. And it really, I feel like I'm just in a shoebox. And so when I can connect to a face over um, this medium, it means a lot. So anyway, I just wanted to say, it makes me happy. So please. Uh, first of all, thank you for your teaching in this time. It's invaluable. And you're generous and incredibly intellectual, powerful Good or bad. Uh, words. Um, I have a sort of conceptual question. Okay. Uh, the, or the, or the, a fundamental question, which is that the bardo teachings, which are so uh, profound, ex expansive, invaluable, imaginative, seem to be rooted in a fundamental belief in rebirth and reincarnation. And so how do those of us who appreciate it, who absolutely cannot right. hook into sure. reincarnation, rebirth. Sure. Seems like there's a deal breaker situation. Yeah, yeah not necessarily, not necessarily, because, and this is a great question, because what happens here, and I invite you to take a really close look at this one, is that the, the Bardo, the probably the healthiest way to frame this is, is look at Bardo principle. Look at Bardo principle. And then whether, and I'll say a little bit more about that, then whether that Bardo principle is applied towards the big Bardo at the end of life, whether you believe in that or not, that's a different issue. The invitation for me here, and this is actually why I'm, I'm teaching more and more on this, literally the title is Bardo's in Everyday Life. And so what you can do, therefore do, and, and you can do this almost as a type of cultural translation when you read these teachings, is realize, um, because you know you mentioned some intellectual predispositions on your part, so I'll speak to you at that level. The Bardo principle is iterative. In other words, it, it has applications on many different levels of reality, um, only one of which is the Bardo at the end of life. So what I would recommend is read, study the Bardo teachings and understand how they have immediate applicability to anything that ends. Whether it's, whether it's a relationship, a job, a day, a thought, every moment abides by Bardo tenets. And this to me is what makes this material so beautiful because in, in my reading of, of it over years, I, I playfully refer to it as stealth help. There's a whole lot more going on than meets the eye. So if you read this literature properly, you will realize that Bardo principles apply to anything that ends. 
And therefore, you can't have endings without beginnings. They mutually define each other. So Bardo teachings also apply as much to birth as they do to death. And so then what you can do is you can say, ah, you know, I, I'm not really that interested in the application towards the end of life. I just don't buy that. So then you say, okay, how do these Bardo teachings, the Bardo of dying, because we're in a Bardo of dying now. How do they apply now? You realize, OMG, they apply to this situation. They apply to the end of a dream, the end of whatever. And so I, I really um, work more and more with this kind of thing for many, many reasons. One is um, there's a tremendous elegance in this kind of universality of these tenets. And this is not just to the Bardo teachings. This applies to, to most descriptions of, um, of reality. And you will find iterations of this everywhere um, in chaos and complexity theory, visually represented in fractals. You'll find it reiterated in philosophical jargon, literally called the theory of recapitulation. So I don't want to blah, blah, blah too much on this. I, I think the most important thing really is make these Bardo teachings your own. Go to the deep structures that underlie Bardo principle and don't get so hung up on all the stuff that happens at the end of life. You know, that, that just doesn't speak to you. That's fine. Centrifuge that out. But then stay with the, the core, which is how these teachings really upon close examination, they apply to anything that ends. And that's what I get excited about. And that's why in the context of what's happening now, these Bardo teachings are absolutely applicable to what we're going through. So something like that, does that make sense? It does. Can I ask you one tiny other little question? Yeah, absolutely. You know, Leonard Cohen said that uh, he was hoping that death would not be too uh, uncomfortable. And uh, dying of COVID-19 seems to be extremely uncomfortable. And in your meditation teachings, which allow for a kind of spaciousness around an event, a painful feeling, right. or one breath meditation, I wonder if you have some guidance, yeah. uh, not only what is extremely uncomfortable, but perhaps extraordinarily confusing and terribly painful. Yeah, this is a terrific question and it's huge. What I might invite you to do, I will say a little bit about it now, but just because there's so much to say here, I might invite you, and it's a free course, the course that I'm just doing with Tricycle Magazine. Um, we can send you the link, it's free. You can listen to it because I go into this in some depth and detail because the depth of the question requ uh, requires a deep answer. In the briefest way, and you can learn more about this in the course, um, you, you want to establish several new relationships. One is a new relationship to unwanted experience altogether. And this is where a, a, a really powerful set of practices um, that are central to the Bardo teachings called the reverse meditations come in, where you literally do meditations on pain. You literally alter your relationship to pain. Tremendous amount to say on that. The second thing you do is you start to understand or work with a deeper, more integral, my friend Jose, I, hear, I see he's on this um, riff, on this um, session with us. Look at a more integral aspect, complete aspect of your very sense of identity. And this may seem like, you know, like metaphysical mumbo jumbo, but it's enormously applicable because we suffer 
physically in direct proportion to how exclusively we identify with the superficial most dimensions of our being. In other words, our physical form. If you think your body is all that's it, you're gonna suffer a lot. That's why people who aren't prepared allegedly suffer a lot during death. If you start to let go, differentiate to, these are euphemisms for death, die to these relative, you know, superficial levels of identity, and transition your identity to deeper, truer levels, which is precisely what the spiritual path does, then it is from that deeper, truer perspective that you can actually witness dispassionately, but compassionately, anything that happens on the surface. It just doesn't have the same impact anymore. This is enormous. And just to show you how enormous this goes, and then I'll, I'll let this one go for now, is watch the video, look it up, watch the video of the burning monk, Thich Quang Duc, who self-immolated um, during the Vietnam War. This man sat in total equanimity, unflinching, unmoved, as his body was ravaged in the most violent possible way. How on earth can someone do that? How can someone maintain such equanimity under these most extraordinary physical conditions? My guess is because this individual, through his spiritual practice, was able to transition his identity into these deeper levels, which are in fact, according to the wisdom teachings, they're untouchable, they're indestructible. Dimensions of your being that don't enter the world of space and time, that don't get sick, that cannot be touched by this virus. So um, you can see how much traction there is on this one. I might just kindly invite you to take a look at this course because that's where I go into this in quite a bit more detail. But it's a really beautiful, deep, powerful question and um, maybe I'll just leave it at that for now. Is that okay? Yeah, terrific, thank you. Um, great, next question, or next hand raised is Ariella Ben-David. So you, Ariella, you have the audio. Oh, thank you, where is Andrew? Love it, oh, it just means so much to me that I can see you people, I can't tell you. I can give you like a, like a internet hug here. So anyway, fire away. Hi, Andrew. Um, Hi. I've been, uh, <laughs> can't believe I'm talking to you because I've been emailing you and I'm one of those high friends. I'm just, just not, not enough hours during the day and so I can respond to you person. But I appreciate that you responded. Um, I'm finishing a 100-day retreat. And oh, you're in Crestone. Yes. Yeah, hi. Oh, that's who you are. Okay, got it. Nice. Yes. Yeah, yeah, nice to see you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I can't tell you how much uh, working with a dream book and with a course has meant to me. I, it just launched me to a whole other level of my practice. And Thank you for saying just, that. Um, I, I can't. I'm really, I, I'm, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's such a confirmation and I get confirming dreams. And, but my question right now, so I went into retreat. The world was a different place. Yeah. Right. And I'm going to come out in a week time. And um, one of the maybe uh, opportunities during this, during this retreat was really to see what Tulkurjan so adequately says, you know, when the mind is turned outward into its projections, that's samsara. Yeah, no kidding. And when it's turned inward, that's nirvana. Yeah. And so I find it gets played out every time 
I expose myself to the news. Yep. And um, when I talk to my loved ones, especially elderly mother, where, you know, if I can just, if I just allow myself to go there, I go into sheer terror about what will happen to her. And yet, you know, and then in another moment, I practice, whether it's with the Edom or with the nature of mind, it, it's the same, right? And, uh, and always well, and it's like big mind. Um, yeah. Can you say something about that play? How, how do you work with that? How, I mean, I'm, I don't want to use it to avoid That's right. suffering out there. That's right. And I'm not going to. I'm a nurse, and I'm probably going to go back and work because I want to help. Yep. But um, I, you know, I, I don't know how to play yeah. with that. Yeah, that's really well, really, again, a beautiful question. You know, it, it has to do with this, this delicate dance because, as you just so beautifully put it, there are a host of near enemies, right? You know, wherever you find light, you will find shadows. So <clears throat> there are a host of near enemies to anything, even these really beautiful, incredibly noble, powerful practices. And so the near enemy of, of like what you were talking about, nature, mind practices, yin practice and the like, is in fact what you're suggesting, which, which are things like um, spiritual bypassing, technically for the intellectuals out there, cosmological dualism. There's just a host of places where you can um, slip into dissociation, um, where you think, oh, it's all empty, it's all a dream, it's all illusory, you know, so what does it matter what I do? That's, that's a very powerful near enemy. And obviously, just the fact that you're asking the question is indicative of your sensitivity to that pathology. So what we want to do then is differentiate, not dissociate. So we still, we, we play this kind of dance. And, and, and if you can tag into the talk um, really, that I'm going to be doing tomorrow. But, oh, I am. I'm following, I'm following that course. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to riff on this a lot tomorrow okay. because this is exactly where this course is going to conclude. You know, where those of you who may not be listening to it, we're using the classic Buddhist approach of view, meditation, action. So you're in retreat, strengthening your view through your meditation. That, as you know, that's just remedial work. When you finish your retreat, you're going to step into the final phase, which is really action. How do you act in an enlightened way? Um, how do you act um, in a non-dualistic way? And so this is precisely what your question is. And the answer is a large part of what I'm going to be talking about tomorrow. So again, just in the purposes of, of allowing other people to talk today, plus in that venue tomorrow, I'll, I'm going to riff on this for a good 15, 20 minutes, because this is a hugely important topic, um, especially when you're coming out of deep teachings on emptiness, nature of mind practices, there are so many shadow elements to these luminous practices that understanding what enlightened activity really is, um, how to engage in it, being aware of all these side traps is critically important. So with your kind permission, can I just refer you to that talk tomorrow? And then again, we'll be back online next, next Thursday. If there's a trailer question, just come back on and, and we'll talk about it then. Is that yeah, and not, and, not, and not get lost in the, in the reflection either, you know. That's exactly, yeah. Exactly. That's the other piece. Yeah, yeah. Which so if that works for you, if that works for you, yeah. is that okay? Yeah. Yes. yes. Um, because and this again, I'm going to be. This is exactly what's on my docket for tomorrow in the course. So you'll you'll definitely riff on it then. Okay. Great. Good luck with your retreat.
See you. Great. Um, next up, Jill Dunphy. Jill, you have the audio. Oh, now now you have Hi. the audio, Jill. Sorry. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Hi, Jill. Yeah, we can see Hi. you too. Awesome. Oh, nice to see you. Um, I'm. Um, I just wanted to add a couple of things. I'm. I'm a student. I'm a yoga instructor, and I studied with Judith Lassiter, who's the like the queen of restorative yoga, right. and her big mantra is "Do less." Yeah. And um, so I'm constantly instructing my students to do less, and it's really, 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 really hard yeah. because they yeah. don't know what that means. Right. Um, and I don't even know what it means. Right. To be honest. Right. Um, but uh, and and another thing I wanted to add, I just finished reading uh, Yonggi Minjur Rinpoche's book, "In Love with the World," talking about the bardos. Beautiful book. What a huh? Beautiful example of the many different bardos. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm new to the study of bardos, and so it was a revelation to me. Which I just nice. thought it was you know something that ha occurred at death. And it was just a beautiful, incredible examination of the mind Isn't it? Um, that I highly recommend people read. Um, but the one thing I wanted to ask you, um, both my husband and I have, since this um, quarantine has started, uh, have had really explicit dreams. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I, I just wondered if everybody else's or anybody else's had that experience and how to work with that. Um, my husband had a nightmare. Um, uh, oh, has coronavirus appeared in my dreams? Not to my knowledge. Um, and, and I've been trying to work with lucid dreaming on this and it hasn't really been successful. And I think that's a sign of my anxiety about this whole thing. I'm really surprised at how I'm holding my body, how I'm breathing. I've been feeling a lot of body pain, um, not related to the virus, I don't think. I hope not. <laughs> um, but I think the anxiety is just really surprising and yeah. how it's manifesting. Yeah. Yeah. Even though I know I have practices to work with that, but I just wondered about the dreaming and sure. if you could a bit about that. Yeah, a couple things. Well, I want to say something at the very beginning from, from, from your initial comments, which is really interesting, this idea of doing less. You know, this again, um, I, I'm going to be, again, uh, I'm going to be pinging a little bit about this tomorrow when I talk about um, enlightened activity, because it's very interesting as they say in the Taoist tradition, right? Um, the teachings on Wu Wei, by, um, by doing nothing, nothing is left undone. And so this idea of doing less is, is a really interesting thing to understand if you understand the strata of your being, the dimensions of your being, and the parts of your being that really are involved in applying wisdom. Apply, you know, applying wisdom is compassion. Compassion is applied wisdom. That wisdom funnily arises within us from this, this deep, changeless, immovable, utter, silent, um, stable core of our very being. The core of the very being where you can't do anything because there is no you. You're literally resting in the, the primordial bed of mind. Um, and for human doings, that level of, of being is really difficult. But the idea, and, and this is again what I'm going to be talking precisely about tomorrow, 
what we want to do is an invitation on the practice of the path is, <clears throat> path in practice is learn to identify, take refuge in this deepest, unmovable nature of our being, where fundamentally nothing needs to be done and nothing actually can be done. But yet from that, then we radiate and shine out precisely what does need to be done. It's like the center of the cyclone, always silent, always stable, always deep, profound, immovable, changeless. Staying there, that's a problem. That's a spiritual problem. But what we want to do is identify with that from that space. Then we automatically know how to do. We automatically know what to do because we're informed from this deeper sense of refuge. So I'll be saying more about that tomorrow. In terms of the dream thing, this is also really interesting. And, and we're about to launch a launch. I'm about to post on our nightclub site um, an article that was sent to me. It's actually three articles now that I've read about how this virus is being played out in the individual and collective psyche. And so, um, uh, again, I, I seem to be just re referring people to everything. It's, I will refer you to that. The idea for now is that what is in fact happening is that, um, and they found this out doing studies during the Third Reich and how it was that during the, that terror in Germany, how it affected the collective mass, the psyche, and how people were dreaming and processing in their dreams, Hitler and the whole Third Reich. So this, this starts to work with this very interesting domain that uh, researchers like Harry Hunt and Robert Ogilvy talk about, which, which basically they paraphrase, paraphrase as, the farther down the rabbit hole you go, the more collective the experience becomes. Mm -hmm. And so therefore what happens is when you drop down, of course, Jung talked about this in terms of the collective unconscious. What I was talking about at the very outset of my response to you goes even deeper than that. But the idea is that there is, in fact, this environment, collective, and people are starting to tune into that, and it's manifesting in their dreams. And, and so when you start to, when you read this, these posts that we'll be putting up shortly, I think it will be profoundly illuminating in terms of what's happening to your psyche and how it's being affected at the level of the dream by what's happening in the world. Because when we start to go down into these deeper domains, the mind becomes, in a real way, increasingly more porous. It's, it's more in the public domain, so to speak. And really sensitive folks, practitioners, those who have developed this kind of porosity of mind and heart, will actually find themselves dreaming in this larger way. And, and literally, at some point, um, quite, quite literally become like surrogate dreamers, where you can quite literally dream for another person. But the idea is that this is a completely normal thing for, for people that have a more sensitive, open relationship to the contents of their mind, meditators, contemplatives, and the like. They start to notice these sorts of things happening in their dreams. And to me, I find it really quite beautiful because, again, it, it to me points out the commonality of the human condition. And that what I know is my waking consciousness is just the, the top. It's like this pyramid, this little pinch sense of identity associated with body and me. That's just the, the salt on top of the ocean. And when you fall asleep, that salt dissolves into the ocean. And so therefore, you, you develop this kind of, talk about connectivity that we we're talking about at the outset. You can register this underlying connection connectivity with what's happening um, in, your, in your family, in your neighbors, in the world, 
um, altogether. And to me, this is really, it's elegant, it's beautiful, it's mysterious, and it makes me feel part of the human condition. It makes me feel part of the whole sentient condition. Um, and therefore, it's not disturbing to me. I find it like, you know, I'm dreaming about this stuff as well. I'm, I'm finding it really connecting me to others who are sharing similar types of concerns, anxieties, and the like. And then what you do with that, that's a different story that I, I might pass on for now. That's where the dream practices particularly come into play that, that may be worth another conversation at another time. But something like that, is that helpful? Oh, that's wonderful. I just, I love the idea of going deep into the collective uh, consciousness about this. I think that's incredible. It, it, it blends in with some of the teachings I've read by B. Allen Wallace My about uh, meditation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thank Perfect. You so Great question and great questions and offerings. Thank you so much. Awesome. Um, Lauren Thomer has her hand raised. Hi. Yeah. Hi, Lauren. Coming up. Up. Oh, you have the audio. Hi. So glad to see you, Andrew, and relate to your teachings. Oh, there you are. Um, nice to see you. It's been a while. Thank you. I'm going to read a question that I asked. It's, please, Andrew, this major disruption, isolation, feels like a dream shift. But it feels like a what? I'm sorry? A dream shift. Yeah. The music, news, commentaries seem like waking from an old dream. The old dream is fading in the unknown. Everything I'm listening to is the past and will not be revived again. Yes, a new bardo. What is important? Why not start the fast to death? Is there any reason for optimism? Wow. So, yeah, beautiful, my friend. Is there any reason for optimism? It depends on us. It depends on us. Everything about this is, you know, I, I, I'm using this classic maxim from, from Vajrayana Buddhism, um, transforming obstacle into opportunity, um, pessimism into optimism. That's not gonna happen on its own. And in fact, studies, my friend Roger Walsh um, has, was sharing a study where in times of duress, stress, anxiety, like we're feeling now, the actual default is regressive. The actual default is actually reconstitutive of old ways because that's what we're most familiar with. And so the reason this question is in comment is so beautiful, Loring, is that it's really up to us whether we transform this obstacle into opportunity depends entirely on how we relate to it. If we relate to it as Humpty Dumpty hitting the ground and we're just going to kind of try to patch them back together again because we don't know an alternative narrative, then there's not a whole lot of optimism here. It's really a pretty, it's just super samsara. But these wisdom teachings, to me, they provide alternative narratives. And that's where shaking things up like that, if we're armed with these alternative narratives and the practices that help us implement them, then this is like what Trungpa Rinpoche said. You know, you probably remember this incredibly famous quote, chaos should be regarded as extremely good news. Whoa, sounds good on paper. It doesn't sound good in life. Chaos is, re is regarded as extremely good news because it shakes up the egoic snow globe, the egoic structure and agenda. 
And so it's only good news if we can somehow take advantage, quote unquote, of what this actually has to offer to us and then make the appropriate skillful actions based on that view. So it's a that's a terrific um, question that I think to me is why arming ourselves with these wisdom teachings, for me, Buddhism, um, Kashmir Shaivism, Nandual Shaiva Tantra, Integral Theory, um, and then the Bardo teachings, it's critically important because then I can use that matrix as a way, in fact, to change the narrative and to do something that can really be advantageous out of this. Because otherwise it's just a, you know, pardon my French, it's just a three ring shit show. And um, it's not gonna get any better unless we take the opportunity to, to really look at this chaos, in fact, as potentially good news. It's no guarantee. It's no guarantee. So something like that, but it's a beautiful contribution. Thank you. I have one addition. Okay. Are you familiar with uh, Charles Eisenstein in Brilliant? Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. Yep. He, ha he has written a very ins instructive article called The Coronation. I highly recommend it. It's both on audio and video. And it goes through the whole thing of from beginning to end and possibilities and room for optimism and pessimism. Fantastic. So I, Fantastic. Can you possibly send me that? You have my, you have my email address, uh, Andrew at andrewhalchick.com. Can you send me a link to it and, and we can actually post it? I will do that. I'd love it because this is, the, is exactly the kind of stuff that I want this venue to um, provide for others because I'm not familiar with that and I'd very much like to share it. So send, it, send me the link to it and we'll put it up there. Thank you. My Thank pleasure. you, Loring. Really appreciate it. Terrific. Okay, maybe a couple more. We have a few minutes. I'm here for another 20 or so if you want. Okay, great. Uh, next up is Becky. Um, Becky, unmuting. Oh, oops. Okay, there you go. Okay, thanks. Um, a, a couple of quick comments. One is that I'm realizing that I had a dream um, a few nights ago was a lot more there was a lot more depth there about human connection i'm not going to share the specifics of it just because of time but um, i'm just realizing there there is so much fruitfulness available to us um, in the dreams we might have um, at this time uh, so that's comment number one Beautiful. Um, and then comment number two is just sort of a light comment about connecting um, in a way that just occurred to me yesterday and that is that all of our forebears um, survived the Spanish flu epidemic and if we can maybe put ourselves in their shoes for a little right. bit maybe our grandparents or great-grandparents were teenagers then during this time what was life like for them um, you know in their house maybe they were in a big city maybe they were in a rural area and that's why they survived and we wouldn't be here if they hadn't and it's it's just I think it would be sort of a, a bit of of a light connection and a light meditation to ponder in this time about our grandparents and and our other um, uh, ancestors who made it through and now we know a little bit more a little bit more what it was like for them so I just wanted to make those two yeah comments. boy that, that one touches me very personally because I've been doing exactly the same thing with a, a newfound sense of appreciation for my parents you know, my mom was a refugee from Lithuania, so she, she suffered 
Nazi Germany coming uh, east and then Stalin coming west. My father uh, was conscripted in the Red Army when Stalin and the Russians took over Czechoslovakia. He defected. Um, and, and so exactly what you're mentioning is something that I have also been using to uh, gain a deeper sense of respect. Um, and also, it's very interesting, you know, I've been watching this breathtakingly powerful, not easy to watch. It's like an eight, nine, 10 part series that Netflix recently posted on, on World War II. It is the most um, elucidating, informative thing I've ever watched. Um, I've watched eight of the 10 by now, and it's done a tremendous amount for me. One is obviously learning so much about the horrors of World War II, but also raising my gaze and putting, and again, this is not in any way to dismiss what's happening now, that just like understanding the Spanish flu, which like what, 50 million people died? I can't remember, something like that. I know in World War II, 50 million people were, were killed. So recontextualizing, reframing what's happening now, raising our gaze into a more a larger historical, whether it's genealogy or history altogether. What it does for me, Becky, is it helps decentralize. Because otherwise, again, you know, the natural tendency is this kind of regressive, contractive, defensive thing. All these types of strategies bring me out of that into a larger, more encompassing, open way of relating to what's happening. And this is really important because, you know, um, the smaller the mind and heart gets, the more it suffers. The larger the mind and heart gets, the less one suffers. And so whatever we can use to connect to our forebears, genealogically, his historically, or whatever, I think is very fruitful. So thank you for sharing that. It's good stuff. Appreciate it. Sure. Thank you. You bet. So a couple more. Yeah. Um, next is Deb Howard. Deb, you have the audio. Hi, Andrew. So thank you so much for Hello. offering this to us. Good to see oh, you. Nice to see you. Um, I think my question has a lot the same as what some other people have asked, which is like, I am actually doing really well. I have a great house and I have enough food and, you know, I'm fine, but I just keep thinking about other people like people mm -hmm. in India, people in South America, other people who are homeless in jail in ice camps and all that. And it just is so overwhelming. Yeah. Um, and so when I meditate, I think as someone else was saying, like I can meditate and be in this really open space but then you know as soon as i start thinking about what's happening to other people in the world yeah um i just find it really difficult and really hard to take in and process um so i'm you know i'm gonna listen to your talk tomorrow i think you said but i just whatever pointers or yeah. you can say about that yeah um well one thing i would say um is don't when you take it in don't take it personally um, I think that's one of the biggest things. And I'll give you a, a practice that, um, in fact, I'm going to talk about it tomorrow in the tricycle course, but I can just at least share the name with you, is, you know, the practice of Tonglen. Um, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm doing Tonglen more now than I ever have in my entire life. It, it's the central practice I do when I'm working specifically at the bedside of someone who's dying. I find myself doing Tonglen for the ER docs, for, I mean, you name it. Um, there's no, no shortage of material, so to speak. And I actually find myself doing Tonglen for myself. And so um, 
the approach here is, is a really delicate, very interesting one where, um, and I believe my friend Ken Wilbur has this jingle, something like, as we progress along the path, we feel things more because we're more sensitive, we're awake, we're more porous, open, accommodating. We feel things more, but they hurt us less because we don't give them a place to land. And this to me is the key to working with this because usually when we have these experiences, it's just, again, this is just ego's default mode network. It's just what it does, this fundamental mistake of appropriation where something arises and, and you take it, you take it personally. So the, the delicate dance here is in fact to receive it, to accommodate it, um, to take it in that sense, but then you don't give it a place to land. And one really beautiful way, one image of this that maybe have helped you is allegedly the story has always haunted me of when Trungpa Rinpoche first heard of the death of his dear, dear friend, Suzuki Roshi. He wailed in anguish, just spontaneous outbursts of tremendous grief because one of his most beloved friends had just died. But after he registered this impact, he didn't, he felt it, but he didn't feed it, see? He let it register, but then he didn't, he didn't um, proliferate on it, this thing I'm called propancha that I'm teaching a lot about these days. So I think somewhere in there is the way to play with it. Allow it to touch you, because otherwise, instead of uh, becoming more sensitive, you become insensate, less sensitive. Let it touch you, but don't let it land, see? So then you still feel it. And then from that space, then that brings about the, the motivation, the compassion to really be a benefit to others. But you will actually find that your suffering, um, personal suffering, so to speak, diminishes um, in this kind of almost paradoxical way. So something like that, play with that. And then, um, yeah, and just let me know. I mean, Tong Lin to me, major important practice at this point. So something like that. That makes a lot of sense. I feel like I've been um, breathing it in, but not breathing it out. So yeah. that, that yeah. really makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Yeah. And then what you could do, what, what I do with this sometimes is I will actually, because, you know, doing the tonglen in and out, in and out, sometimes that's hard for me. So what I will do sometimes is I will do like 10 in-breaths and then I'll do 10 out-breaths, you know, because then I, I find I can make, I can feel into it with a little bit more authenticity if, if the alternation isn't so quick. So 10 in-breaths, I, 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 and again, you're not taking it in, and this is exactly what I'll be talking about tomorrow. The cosmos is taking it in, you're not taking it in, the universe is taking it in. So you breathe that in through every pore as a representative of the cosmos. It's not you that's inhaling this. And then similarly, as a representative of the cosmos, you send it out. So something like that, okay? Yeah, that's really helpful, thank you. Yeah, welcome. Okay, a couple more. I'm gonna go till, till 1.30 or whatever time it is here, 2.30. Uh, next, Daryl Burnham. Um, Daryl, you have the audio. Uh, great, thank you so much. Um, Hi, Daryl. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful to see you, it's been a while. It's been a while. Uh, and um, I'm, I'm coming, I'm speaking from Los Angeles. 
And one of the things that we are very concerned about is, uh, is this medium, this virtual reality that we're Yeah, no kidding, huh? And what we're exploring, and we have been exploring for the past year, because we've had in our community, we've had uh, the rug pulled up from underneath us with, with regards to the, our teacher. And um, so in some, ways, in some sense, we've, we've kind of like have, have, have uh, had some experience with, with that. And uh, the dust is still kind of like in the air waiting to be settled. And this is, uh, this is not unfamiliar to us in some sense. Um, what is arisen is the uh, is a, a connection to protector practice. Yeah. And how do we how do we bring protector practice into this venue? Mm -hmm. And we are already experiencing um, um, this venue with uh, actual meditation sessions. Uh, we did the uh, the Sadna Mahamudra uh, yep. last uh, weekend, and people. There were 160 people who showed up for that. It was pretty amazing. Awesome. Afterwards, uh, people their, uh, in a deep was was quite amazing, which which really brings up some questions about about how this particular venue is is uh, allowing us to enter a larger connection with each other. Right. Right. And, and, and it's like, it's my responsibility to really explore that and to, and to actually bring into that mix a sense of protection, a protection for the openness for that, right. that experience and the expression. And I just wonder if you had sure. some thoughts on you that. You bet, you bet. Yeah, protector practice, protector principle, two ways to look at this, my friend, um, just to remind you. One is relative protection from things like protect, protector uh, practices, rituals, liturgies, and the like. And, and I have a, an, an extraordinarily deep allegiance to protectors. Um, I, they have, uh, they, let's put it this way, these um, entities, however you want to call them, they are just as real or unreal as we are. Um, and so I have a deep, profound, intimate relationship with protector principle. I have met these protectors in my dreams. They are every bit as real as we are. And so for those who are listening, who have a connection to this relative form of protection, I, I have to tell you, I'm ramping this stuff up. Um, and I'll share one quick story around this from Zigar Contra Rinpoche, and then I'll talk about another form of protection, which is even more important. Zigar Contra Rinpoche once shared the story where he was walking along a path and he had, to, he had to take a, he had to go to the bathroom. And so he kind of sauntered up to this bush or something. And then as, just before he got to it, he just had this feeling like, eh, shouldn't go there. And as he backed away, he heard the rattle of a rattlesnake. And he knew instantly that that was protector principle at work, that there was something there, some part of him that said, don't go there. So uh, for those of you who um, have allegiance or connection to protective principle, I, I have to tell you personally, I'm doing those practices. I do them every night anyway, I'm doing more of them. Daryl, the other type of protection is, is more actually universal and applicable, even for those who don't abide or have relationships to protective principles as perhaps we do as students of Tibetan Buddhism. And that is that the ultimate protection is the teachings of Dharma, the teachings on emptiness. Um, 
And again, boy, this is somewhat prescient. This is exactly what I'm going to be talking about tomorrow um, in my last tricycle course, which is where we're going to talk about this foundational teaching from the Tibetan Book of the Dead, um, which is really largely about protector principle, where it is said repeatedly, emptiness cannot harm emptiness. So understanding absolute levels of protection through the teachings on um, emptiness is of critical importance at this point. Because if we, no, if we don't reify, if we don't concretize, solidify what's happening, um, that's in a very real way, that's the ultimate protection. And as you know, as a student of this tradition, this exhortation is replete. Uh, the teachings on emptiness are the absolute form of protection. So with your kind permission, my friend, I'm going to refer you to my little ref tomorrow because I'm going to go into that again in some detail. So many of these questions are exactly where we're going in that conversation. And again, this, this event is free. Um, you can just find it. Just go to the Tricycle um, website and you'll see this course. And it's also archived, so you'll be able to listen to it. So something like that, my friend, is that helpful? Thank you very much. Yes. Yeah. Nice. So nice to see you again. It's been a Thank while. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Take care, Daryl. So we still have a few more hands raised. I want to try to get through these. I want to honor the four hands that are raised. Yeah, next up we have uh, Barry. Um, unmuting Barry. Okay, Barry. There you go. Andrew, I'd like to say that. It's good to see you. I've been going to that Crowdcast, and it's amazing. I hope everyone goes there. But I just want to say that you are really a light in this bardo. That... Um, you're the bright light, and that's, that's uh, an amazing thing. Uh, I wanted to mention that, um, you know, at the very beginning, you said that, um, what was it, uh, being together is not the same as being connected. Correct. And, uh, you know, for me, I think I, I've been training for this for my whole life. Yeah. Uh, the last 40 years, I've taught online. So what's new for all, all these people who are online now, I've been doing this for 40 years. And I've had students... Uh, in the the, uh, the wilds of Alaska, and I, I had a student in uh, Fukushima when they they had that nuclear mm -hmm. reactor meltdown, and and uh, so I really like this environment. I think it's an amazing connective environment. And the only thought I had was uh, something my wife said to me this morning. She said, um, "Well, it's another day for Corona Rinpoche." Ah. And I said, "What?" And she said, "Well." Uh, viruses are alive and and you know the respect that we should give to Corona Rinpoche because he's giving us this Bardo gift as a, as a way of adapting to the world and, and to me that, that that struck me as being so beautiful because uh, uh, everything you've said is is how you're giving us some good guidance in terms of how to be where we are now and I don't think we should be running from anything, yeah. as you, you say, you know, because we run into ourselves. But right. the fact that, that we have this opportunity, I, I think we should, we should have that kind of an honor, you know, not, not a fear, not a runaway, but, but it's something there for us to grow. Yeah, beautifully said, my friend. And, and as you know, in the Bardo teachings, right, you know, they, they, one of the central teachings is staying with a bright light. Literally in the Bardos, they say that your gaze you know, should not be down, should not be the side. Those are the soft lights. Your gaze should be directly ahead. And so that's, I couldn't agree more that if we have the courage to stay with this bright light, to face it, it's an, a, an extraordinarily powerful teaching moment. But again, 
that moment won't happen if we don't take it as such and if we don't relate to it as such. So thank you, dear friend, for offering that. Always good to see you and uh, so appreciate your comments and participation. So take care of yourself. Wash your hands. <laughs> um, okay, next we have Sosana. And you have the audio, Sosana. Are you there? Sosana? Okay, we'll try the next one. Uh, Patricia? Okay, Patricia, you have the audio. Hello. Hi. Hiya. So I'm, I'm calling from um, uh, the UK. I oh, just wonderful. want to. I just want to reiterate what the other fellas just said about these about uh, your teachings. I'm really getting a lot out of them, so thanks very much. Welcome, thank you. So I don't know if this is a, an appropriate question at the appropriate time, but I've heard you talk a lot about um, like openness, and um, there's a phrase that you say that I can't remember right now. Enlightenment being about awakening to openness, something along those yeah. lines. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, so I've done quite a lot of nature of mind practice and nature of mind can be with anything. Like everything is nature of mind, that everything arises in nature of mind. So how does openness and nature of mind come together? Because you can have nature of mind with contraction. So I yeah. feel like my nature of mind practice is quite good, but I think I'm not, I'm not open. But if I'm bringing openness into nature of the mind, it's not just being with what is, it's, it's, it's manufacturing something. Does that make sense? I think so. Let, let me just um, say what comes to mind and then you can direct me if it's not. Yeah, you know, the, the nature of mind is, is fundamentally beyond both openness and contraction. So what we do, however, is provisionally as a way to make contact with nature of mind, we are invited to open. Um, in fact, I've heard some translations of Buddha, Buddha, B-U-D-H, not just the awakened one, but also the opened one. It's very interesting. It has a lot of very interesting double and triple entendres where it's not just um, openness in the colloquial sense, but openness is a, is a synonym for emptiness. So um, if you can join that, then you can start to see how helpful it is as a path quality to access nature of mind by opening the aperture of our awareness, our heart mind, so that we recognize it. But here's the real gold mine in your question and comment is that fundamentally, you, once you maintain this recognition, you attain the recognition of nature of mind, then it doesn't matter from that stance whether you append the, the following um, kind of expression of that mind in what we would call openness or contraction. Everything has the quality of one taste at that level. So openness and contraction, they co-define each other. They only have existence at, at relative levels of reality. They have no fundamental inherent existence. So with that said, just to repeat, we open to gain access because contraction initially is somewhat in contradistinction to this level of recognition of my nature. We use openness to connect to it, but then once we've connected to it, then we realize that we can come back, um, kind of manifest experience what we would provisionally call contraction. It's still registered that way in a relative way, but on an absolute level, 
it, it's no longer really perceived that way, see? So therefore, you know, um, and I can refer you to a text, a book that writes really beautiful, beautifully about this um, from a Jewish mystical perspective. My dear friend Zvi Ish Shalom wrote a, a really beautiful book a couple of years ago called The Kaduma Experience, The Primordial Torah, K-E-D-U-M-A-H. And in this book, um, which is, you know, Kaduma is kind of pre, or actually you could say post-Kabbalistic Jewish mysticism, in this book, he writes really beautifully about exactly this topic and how it is that at the highest levels, um, there really isn't no longer a bias towards openness or contraction. They all have this fundamental equanimous one taste quality. But that only that taste only comes about once you actually taste and to a certain degree digest, metabolize the nature of mind itself. So something like that, does that make sense to you? Oh, it does. Okay, cool. Great. Yeah, check out his book. It's a really, really beautiful book, The Kaduma Experience. Check it out. Okay. Okay, great. Um, All right. Starting the call Yeah. Uh, we have, uh, and sorry, it takes a second to unmute sometimes. Okay, Leah, you have the audio. Hi, Andrew. Um, Hi, hello from Durham. <laughs> um, my, I have a background in Vipassana, and so I'm really very interested in your discussion of Tibetan Buddhist thinking and philosophy. Okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, and there's so much here that it's, I'm, uh, you know, hard to remember everything. You've given sure. us so much. It's recorded, uh, by uh, the way. It's, this is all recorded. Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, this is recorded? That's yeah. great. Um, so my response or my feeling right now is about time. Mm. You know, time is so uh, insubstantial and it falls apart. And especially now that we're in the same place. And, yeah. you know, I, I'm used to not being, um, I'm sort of introverted, but I, and I'm used to not having to go out and be with everybody all the time. It doesn't bother me. But I do find that um, scheduling around Zoom meetings is a little bizarre. Um, <laughs> and uh, I find that, you know, things, things are uh, out of sync. So I don't know if you have anything to add to that, but it struck me as a particularly important quality right now. Yeah, um, maybe, you know, maybe. hanging on to time or not hanging on to time. Yeah, well, a couple of things here. Um, and again, I'm not sure this is exactly where you're going, but, you know, this, this could, can go really deep. Um, it depends on how far you want to look into this. But it, it, it's somewhat interesting to me as well. I have noticed being in this groundless Bardo space that a lot of things are quite different. My experience of time is a little bit altered. Things do definitely feel a little bit more dreamlike, more groundless. But the issue of time, again, this is an enormous topic. On one level, of course, it's, there is no such thing as time. Um, it's, it is 100% an illusion. Einstein said this, physicists say this, I can refer you, William James wrote about this beautifully. I can refer you to some literature that talks with tremendous elegance, philosophically, scientifically, and spiritually, about the illusory nature of time. Um, in fact, within, I'll do it, within the next 30 seconds that don't fundamentally exist, 
I will give you a little thought experiment to show you the illusory nature of time. Okay, you ready? Yeah. So we can pretty easily all recognize that the future doesn't exist. That's easy. We're not there yet. Also pretty easy to look back and say the past is no longer, the past doesn't exist. Pretty easy, right? So therefore, what is the actual present moment? Well, there isn't one. The present is an illusory line, imaginary line drawn between two non-existence. It doesn't exist. That doesn't mean it doesn't appear. There is this, you know, the wisdom traditions talk about it as the eternal now. There's only just now. And so um, I'm not quite sure where you want to go with this. Um, I can refer you to some books if you want to read more about this. The illusory nature of time is super interesting to explore. The fact that we're in this kind of time warp and things that feel a little bit different now is, is somewhat a signature of, of Bardo type experiences as part of the constancy of our usual frameworks being pulled out. And so therefore all kinds of things like time and others um, can, can it be warped? Um, so that is not at all uncommon. I find it really interesting. I don't find it disconcerting. I find it like, well, this is really, this is really kind of cool. So I'm not sure if this is where you're taking this or where you want to go with it, but that's what comes to mind. Well, it, you know, it goes into quantum physics and all that stuff too. Um, yeah, and I, I, that, that's way beyond me. But I do have a number of uh, discussions with friends who are physicists or engineers or scientists in general. And they say, oh, but of course you can measure time. That's how we understand the difference between now and then. And, you know, the ticking of the clock. And I say, yeah, but the clocks are all bizarre. They're, you know, that's an invention of the Middle Ages as far as the Western concerned. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, but that, that's a level of understanding that isn't necessarily easy to um no it's not relate. easy it's not easy but but i have to tell you the 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 contemplation on the illusory nature of time and then space is well worth the effort so let me let me ring uh refer you to a book written by a dear friend of mine um, um jonathan Bricklin. and the reason i mention this is twofold one is it's a really beautiful exposition on the illusory nature of time um, secondly, is it's a beautiful exploration of the work of transcendental wisdom in the Western context. In other words, the New England transcendentalists. And so it's a beautiful bo book on the work of William James, who I, I love this guy. So this book is called The Illusion of Will, Space, and Time, William James's Reluctant Guide to Enlightenment. I mm -hmm. really recommend you give it a look because there's quite a compelling chapter or two on William James' um, analysis of time that is conjoined with about a, a bunch of other uh, kind of references from scientists, um, mystics, and the like. I really encourage this type of contemplation because it, a really deep dive into this stuff will pull the rug out, hence you're heading towards another bardo, will pull the rug out of what we know as time. And so one last thing on this, and then I'll take the last question and we'll stop for today. Fundamentally, where we want to go is what my friend Surya Das talks about. This relates to the, to the question on nature of mind earlier from the UK. Fundamentally, we want to enter what Lama Surya Das talks about is Buddha standard time. <laughs> Buddha standard time, which is timeless. Um, it's, it's called the fourth moment. It's beyond past, present, and future. And even Wittgenstein said this, you know, he said something like, if one um, looks at, at eternity not as endless temporal duration, but as timelessness, 
then he who exists in the present moment exists eternally. Um, so look at the work of Wittgenstein, um, look at the work of William James, and then take a deep dive into this thing, and, and you will find that you're basically floating in just one big non-thing called the ever-ending now. <laughs> so maybe I'll thank let that you. one go for now, okay? Yeah, All right, maybe, maybe one last one, and then we can call it for today. But um, Is there one left, Andy? No other hands raised. Awesome, great. Thank you guys for hanging in there. Um, this is exactly what I was aspiring to do is this last hour, this kind of sharing of, of con you know, contributions, questions and the like. Um, and so we will um, continue to do this every Thursday for you know, basically as long as we want. So um, between now and then, enjoy this illusory moment. Enjoy this Bardo, um, wash your hands and uh, I'll see you next week. Bye.